If you have a Bible, you could maybe turn in Romans and chapter 1, which we read together from this morning. Romans and chapter 1. Today we're thinking particularly of the fourth verse and, and the phrase there, the Son of God in power. Letters are rare, as we've been saying uh, to the children. We use other forms of communication uh, these days. Uh, our English is all degenerating. We, we can hardly string a sentence together. Our punctuation has forsaken us. Uh, such as the, the methods of modern uh, communication. But here we have one of the Apostles' letters, written probably in AD 57, uh, when he was situated in Corinth. Acts 20, verses 2 and 3, contain these words that the Apostle Paul, he went into Greece, and he continued there for two months. And it was probably in that Lull in his ministry, a time of reflection, a time of new beginning, a time of moving from focus on the eastern areas to focus on the west. In this period, in between, in a time of transition, that the apostle penned this incredibly long, detailed, and fundamental letter to the church at Rome. In chapter 16, he'll mention Phoebe. She was from the church in Centria, which was a seaport close to Corinth. And other details similar to that seem to suggest that Paul was at Corinth in AD 57 when he wrote the letter to the Romans. And what a letter it is. Judged to be the most influential letter in the whole of Christian history. Numerous church leaders have been brought to faith through this letter. You remember Augustine in his garden hearing the child playing next door, take up and read and opening the Bible at random at Romans 13 and coming to faith in Christ. Martin Luther wrestling with his desire to be right with God, struggling with the phrases as he lectured through Romans in his theological college in Germany. Suddenly, by the Spirit's enlightening, appreciating that righteousness referred to God's gracious donation of the righteousness of Christ to the guilty. And John Wesley, as he sat in a fellowship meeting, Hearing the preface to Martin Luther's commentary read, summing up the gospel contained in this magnificent letter, was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps your Christian journey has been impacted greatly by this letter. F.F. Bruce comments, There is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. May God grant that our lives will be changed as we study it together at this time. Such was his importance to John Chrysostom, 
the golden-mouthed preacher, that he had this letter of Romans read to him every week. William Tyndale, in his preface uh, to the letter of Romans, in his tremendously accurate translation uh, of the Bible, he encouraged readers to memorize the book of Romans. And John Calvin asserts in his commentary that when one understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him or her to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Such is the importance and impact and fundamental nature of this part of Scripture that we're beginning to study at this time. Our focus this morning is on the magnificent words in verse 4, the Son of God in power. Let's think firstly of the essence of the Son of God in power. Commentators have looked at verses 3 and 4 and they've seen this contrast that, that has been set up here. Perhaps this was a, a common statement within the first century preaching and congregations, a kind of narrow creed, a, a, a little creed, and, and the apostle draws on this. It's a compressed statement, isn't it, in verses 3 and 4? But what does it mean? There is this contrast here between flesh and spirit, between the seed of David and the Son of God. But unpacking the meaning and identifying the contrast is challenging for us. What is the essence of this statement, the Son of God in power? The contrast here seems to be between the flesh and the power. The flesh, not just humanity. Some, like Charles Hodge, assert that the two natures of Jesus are being referred to here. The seed of David in the flesh, Jesus' humanity, him being born from the line of Judah. He is in the flesh. In contrast to that, he asserts that Son of God refers to Jesus' divinity. But a better understanding of the contrast is between the two states of Jesus. Between his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. His state of humiliation, he's of the seed of David in the flesh. And flesh has all the connotations of weakness and humiliation. And here the apostle is thinking of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, brought up in Nazareth, thirsting, hungry, dying in the flesh. But that's ended now. Now, he's the son of God in power. The days of his humiliation are over. His ministry on this earth has ended. He's the son of God in power. Announced, declared, confirmed, the text has here, declared to be the son of God in power, the phrase emphasizes the, the idea of being established, being confirmed, being appointed, the Son of God in power. A new phase, a new era in Jesus' ministry has opened up now. The, the times, the days of his flesh are ended. The weakness, the ignominy, the rejection, the mockery, the humiliation, it's past now. New door is opened. He's in the state of exaltation now. He's the Son of God 
in power. We will use the language coming up to the May elections, won't we? I wonder who will be in power after the elections. And we use that phrase to describe people who are appointed to a position of authority and can do things and make changes. Put laws in place. They're in power. Here's the Son of God now. Today, he's in power. He's ruling. He's reigning. Burkhoff defines this state of Jesus now as having control over all the armies of heaven, all the forces of nature, all the nations of the earth. He's the Son of God in power. Scripture refers to this, doesn't it, as it speaks of the current position of the risen Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 verse 9, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Ephesians 1, he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all power and authority and might and dominion and every name that is named in this world and the world to come. He's the Son of God in power. He's not weak today. He's not dead today. He's not retired now. He's living. He's active. He's working. Do you worry about your children in this world and society of strong temptation? He's the Son of God in power. Do you worry about your parents as they grow older and as they face weakness and challenge and disruption and uncertainty? He's the Son of God in power. Do you worry about yourself? Do you worry about your province? He's the Son of God in power. And we trust him. And we look to him. And he's with us in our life. The essence of the Son of God in power. Secondly, the evidence of the Son of God in power. What is the evidence that he is the Son of God in power? And two are appended here to that phrase, aren't they, in verse 4. There are two evidences that he's the Son of God in power. One is the Holy Spirit. The other is the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit, or as we have it here, the Spirit of Holiness. And again, there's been debate, as you will know if you've read any commentaries on Romans, over this phrase. Does this refer to Jesus' perfect spirit, his divinity? Charles Hodge asserts that it does. But other commentators see this phrase as being very close to the common description of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. So spirit of holiness, they argue, refers to, and I agree with, the Holy Spirit. But in what sense? Is it his inspiration of the Old Testament predicting the resurrection and glory of Jesus Christ as we have in Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 49 or the type in Jonah chapter 1? That aligns with verse 2 of Romans chapter 1 spoken of Christ by the prophets. Or perhaps it refers to the Spirit's involvement in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which we find in Romans 8, verse 11. The best answer, I think, is 
that it refers to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. He's the Son of God in power, and here's one evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. Jesus taught his disciples in John's Gospel, I'm leaving you. I'm going to my Father, but I will send to you the Holy Spirit. And so Paul latches on to this promise and fulfillment. The coming of the Spirit is evidence that Jesus is the Son of God in power at God's right hand. The royal standard flies over palaces when the Queen is in residence in that palace. The visible, the tangible, the evident flag indicates that she is there. And so it seems the outpouring of the Spirit is evidence that Jesus Christ is risen, ascended, seated at God's right hand, the Spirit of holiness. And the second evidence is the resurrection from the dead. Within theological debate, there is this question, it's a really interesting question about when the exaltation of Christ began. Many assert that it began at the resurrection. But there were hints before this, weren't there? No bone of his body was broken at the cross. Pilate, against all the odds, donated the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. God stepped in even at the cross and said, that's enough, humiliation of my son. Hence, just like night turning to day, when is a Rubicon crossed, the line in the sand stepped over, there is this grey, there is this phasing out of the night and the dawning of the day. And so in the exaltation of Jesus, there is this gradual development and dawning of his glory. But key to its beginning is the resurrection from the dead. Appearing and disappearing, ascending into heaven. A new era, a new phase. A new state has dawned. He's the Son of God in power. It's difficult watching images from Kiev and in Ukraine, isn't it? The emotion of people dealing with the dead. And Jesus was there. He's alive. His state of humiliation is ended. The Spirit has been poured out. He is risen again. He is reigning, ruling, serving, King in the presence of God. And for this to dawn on us, for this appreciation to come to us again today is transformational, isn't it? He's the Son of God in power. Perhaps you're at a dinner party and you don't know many of the people there and, and you ask a steward, well, well who, who's that lady over there? Oh, that's Mrs. Brown, O-B-E. And immediately your approach changes, your deference, your lines of conversation, your questions are more submissive and humble. 
Does we remind it again today in our lives? He's the Son of God in power. Transforms us. Our faith, our humility, our worship, our reverence, our appreciation. He is great. He's exalted. He is king. See if Paul begins this letter. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's grasped this. And these two things go together, don't they? When we think we're great, Jesus appears small. When we think Jesus is great, we appear small. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in power. What a a moment to rededicate ourselves to Christ today. To be his servant. His slave. The words I speak. The thoughts I have. The actions I perform. Let me be a slave. Of the son of God. In power. Thirdly. The expression of the son of God in power. And here in this opening introduction to Romans there is one word repeated three times which is an expression of Christ being in power and it's the word of course called it's in verse 1 it's in verse 6 it's in verse 7 here is one evidence of him one expression of his power as he rules and reigns today that he calls He effectually calls. He transforms life. He interjects into the minds and hearts and experiences of people. He calls people. He called Paul in verse 1. Called to be an apostle. It was dramatic. Down on the Damascus road. He was a chief persecutor. He was rushing to arrest and imprison Christians. And suddenly... Jesus gate crashed into his life and called him. He transformed his direction and his outlook, the focus of his energies. He became a servant and preacher of Jesus, the called by Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, this doesn't just happen to preachers, to apostles, but it happens also to people. And Paul describes the people gathering in the church at Rome as called by Jesus Christ. He has broken into their life too. Rome, the massive city, the central city, the place where everybody wanted to go with its many temples and its many gods and its dark, dark morals. What a pull, what pressure, what attraction, what a grip it had on the citizens. But Jesus is the Son of God in power. And he calls his people. And they leave those false gods. And they turn aside in repentance from the base morals. And they become worshippers and servants of Jesus Christ. Here's an expression of his power. He calls apostles. He calls people into his kingdom. Politicians are calling on us 
to vote in May. They're calling on us to align ourselves with their policies and their party. They want our support. They're calling on us. But how many will respond to their call? How effective will their call be? Jesus is the Son of God in power. And when he calls, all his people come. Yes, it won't be as dramatic as Paul and the the Damascus Road. The lights won't be blazing or voice will not be heard audibly spoken by the risen Christ. But he calls us and our life is changed and a new power is infused and a new direction and hope is opened up for us. Yes, we repent. Yes, we believe. Yes, our life is changed. But... Underneath it all is the Son of God in power. And lastly, the exaltation of the Son of God in power. In verse 5, for his name. He's so great, the risen Savior. So magnificent, so glorious, that all the apostle was interested in was exalting his name, for his name. There's two strands to that in verse 5, isn't there? One is his apostleship. He talks about grace and apostleship, and we're probably to collapse those two phrases into one, the grace of apostleship. He's amazed that he was called to this noble task, this frontline ministry. And he says in other places, there's None of the apostles who have worked harder than me. He grasped this calling. He he gave all his energies to to this ministry. He's laboring here in the east. And and now, older in years, he's moving in a, a new direction. He wants to go to Spain, to the very borders of the Roman Empire. But all of it was for his name. For the exaltation and the praise and the honor of the Son of God in power. The other strand is the obedience of faith in verse 5. An interesting and really important phrase that the obedience of believers comes from their faith. We don't obey to earn salvation. We obey because we are saved. And in this relationship with the risen Jesus, we receive strength to obey. The obedience which is sourced in faith, united to Jesus Christ. But all of that, our best, our highest, our godliest, our most pietistic thoughts, words and deeds, are for his name, for his glory, for his praise. For his honor. We are hidden. The son of God in power. Is exalted. There's a real edge. To this phrase. Because Paul's writing. Into a divided church. In AD 49. Jews were expelled from Rome. They were considered to be troublemakers. And they were out of the great city. And they had gone away for a time, but but now the the, the Jewish Christians included have come back to the city of Rome. But in the meantime, the Gentiles left in that city had gained the positions of authority within the church. 
And now when the Jewish Christians have come back, there's this clash between the Christian Gentile believers and the Jewish Christian believers. Some of them want to keep the laws and holy days and and perform ceremonies related to the Old Testament. And later on, Paul will deal with this in his letter. But at the outset, he hints at what the solution is for his name. It's not about us, their personal opinions, their preferences. It's about the Son of God in power. Risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God for his name. Over the past two years, within many congregations, there have been many differences, many opinions announced, many positions taken. Perhaps we've been blown off track and got away from the central and main things as can often happen. We've been called back to the crucial perspective for his name. The Son of God in power. What a book it is. William Tyndale, as books were rare and circulated in his time, he realized that when when a peasant... I received one such book and looked at Romans, they would be inclined to move on to the book of Philemon. This long, this dead, this difficult book full of hard concepts and strange ideas would be hard for, for any peasant to, to master or be interested in. So William Tyndale prefaced the book of Romans with his encouragement. The more you study it, the easier it gets. The more you chew it, the sweeter it becomes. That's because Christ is central and dominant in this book. The Son of God in power. 9-11, Bill Clinton, he drew a comparison between those who gave their lives on the air flights to save others, and the Spartans who gave their lives at that memorable pass. And he said, there has always been a special place in the common memory for people who deliberately, knowingly, certainly laid down their lives for other people to live. There has. For Christians... The supreme place is for Jesus Christ laying down his life that we might live. But today, he is not dead. He is risen. He's the Son of God 